Well, welcome. I'm excited to get into tonight's Bible study. This is uh, lesson two, and we're just going to go back over lesson uh, lesson two, which is chapters two and three of Ruth. Grab your Bibles, open those up, and um, get your note pages out if you want to take notes in your packet there. Thank you for being here, live and in person. All those who are listening on the podcast, say hello, everybody on the podcast. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for our time together tonight. What a blessing to dwell so richly in your word and to see the blessing in our own lives. Thank you for the wisdom that we get. Thank you for just the reminders of your love and your grace in our life that we get. But thank you most of all for just letting us meet you. And so tonight we would do that. I pray that you would guard my my mouth tonight, that the words of my, my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you. And Lord, that um, we would glorify you in this evening in our study in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Hallelujah. Amen. All righty. So we, again, are picking up on chapter two. And we left off at the end of lesson one. So sad. And yet this glimmer of saving that could happen, right? So bitter, but the possibility of blessing around the corner. So the backdrop of our book of Ruth is period of time in the judges. You remember that, right? And what's the main idea of judges? That everyone was doing what? Whatever they wanted, wanted, right? They were all just doing their own thing, following their heart as opposed to obeying God, which always cracks me up when I see those posters and t-shirts following your heart. Really? You would want me to follow the evil, most wicked part of my being? No, I'll follow God. Let him change my heart along the way. So they were following their heart instead of following God and the experiencing the consequences of their sin and just living outside of the blessing of God and his covenant land, literally living outside of that. And yet we see the hope. I've asked you to read Ruth over and over and over and over again. I'm going to ask you to read it again this week as you get into this next lesson. We're just going to immerse ourselves in that and read it again. How many of you, as you find it, you're reading and rereading, go, when did they put that person there? <laughs> I did not see that. And it's like the light dawns on you in a different way and you make new connections. It's so exciting, right? So God, we know, is going to redeem it all. He's going to redeem it all. He's going to redeem their past. He's going to redeem their lives. He's going to redeem their future. He's going to provide ultimately through these people in this account for the redemption of all of us. You and I in this room, those of us listening right now are on the receiving end of the redemption that happened 3,000 years ago in this account of Naomi and Ruth and everybody else involved. And we see the end of the story. And we know that out of the mess will come the Messiah, right? It's a love story, but it's so much more. It's the ultimate love story. Capital U, ultimate, capital L, love story, right? So let's pick up where we left off with Naomi telling Ruth to go. And Ruth making good on her famous promise from chapter one that where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Those weren't just empty words. She is living it. She's doing it right here. So Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was? And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and uh, gleaned in the field after the reapers. So Naomi says, Go, and Ruth goes. Again, making good on that vow that she made to her. And she happened dun, 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 to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Oh, Boaz. If this was a movie, mm-hmm. right? He'd have his own theme song, don't you think? Yeah. Like whenever he comes on the scene, like the violins shift in and the drums or something really cool and romantic and powerful coming up behind him. And the camera would swoop down and, and around him as he comes on the scene and the music would shift from sad and ominous to light and to hopeful. And Boaz, whose name means by strength, Boaz, who in this story we are just now meeting, we know because of history that he becomes a strong leader of the family and he brings us King David, his son Solomon, and ultimately Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting side note. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the one who builds the temple to God, that big temple of Solomon, right? Two huge pillars stand at the entrance of that temple. Do you know that Solomon named one of those pillars after Boaz? Oh, one of those pillars is actually named Boaz. The other one's named uh, Jaquim, which means certainty. And so we have strength and certainty as you walk into the temple named after Boaz. Isn't that cool? So he's not just some guy who tosses the name of God out without meaning, like actors, you know, getting their awards at the Academy Awards. And I thank God for everything. Yeah, no. Right. He means it. He really seems to get it about God. And we see that he greets his people in the name of this God, and he lives his life by the will of God, and his people are happy, and they're respectful. And they, we see this scene as so much of the contrast of the leadership of Naomi's husband and sons, who, when this famine hits the land of Israel, they don't stay to obey. Remember last week I said, instead of praying for rain, maybe we should what? Obey for rain. Perhaps that's what they should have been doing all along. But they didn't stay. They didn't obey, let alone pray for rain. They didn't seek God. They abandoned the land. They abandoned the people. They went after pagans. They even married the pagan wives. And we see this whole scene now with Boaz in this huge contrast. The opening scene, everyone's moping off to Moab, right? And now this scene, the Lord be with you and also with you, like we greet each other. God is good. And we see, like, you know the call and response. It's like his people knew the drill. They knew the call and response. So it's almost bouncing with joy. It's bouncing and filled and ripe with prosperity. And they answer, the Lord bless you. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Right? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back from Na- with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's gathering. And she's continued from early morning till now, except for a short rest. And I love that he includes this. It's like he's probably already married and hooked up, but he's like, Hey, Boaz, I can let him know about this lady here. And she's really great. Like she's been gleaning and she hasn't even taken a rest. Uh, hint, hint, old Boaz, right? You can see it kind of moving in that direction. 
So these are clearly good people. They're living under the blessing of God, even during very difficult times. The period of Judges is still what we're dealing with. And they've certainly remembered the famine. They've lived through it. They're on the other end of it now. Of course, we are in this harvest time. And um, the times are changing. And God is blessing. And they're welcoming even a pagan like Ruth, into the blessing. Surely during famine, you're going to hold down and hunker down and keep things tight, close, and no way, no how, no Moab's going to get in because we barely have enough food for ourselves. But now it's harvest and it's abundant and we're under the leadership of Boaz and he's the hero and he's the good guy and he's been training us well and we greet each other in the name of the Lord. Amen? Right? And so they want this bounty to go beyond just their fields. The hand of Boaz is evident. It's clear. And Boaz goes on and he makes it personal. And I get the feeling that it was love at first sight. I do. Uh, Because from this point on, his interest is on Ruth and not on the harvest. And it's here where we start to see the grace of God open up like a flower in the spring. Ruth is still a poor woman. She's still a widow. She's a daughter of the widow. And she's a foreigner. And not just any old ordinary foreigner. A cursed foreigner of Moab, right? But God's grace is drawing her in. God's kindness is reaching through Boaz to her. Do you feel it? Verse 8. Then Boaz says to Ruth. The first words. Here we go. Boaz takes this initiative. Like God reaching out for us. Not because we had anything to offer. Actually, we were by law like Ruth, outcasts, undeserving, under a curse, but his grace, God's grace is reaching. And in his kindness, Boaz spells out exactly what he wants Ruth to do and expects his people to do. Now listen, my daughter, he says. And at this point, I want you to shift the camera lens over to Ruth and I want you to zoom in on her face. Consider Ruth looking up to see not just a master, but the master, right? The master of this field and all that she's benefiting from. Consider how she might be feeling at the sound of his big, strong voice. Scared? Am I going to be able to stay here? Does he know? These people are not my people. This field is not my field. The God of Israel it's not my God, not, not really. Maybe she has a little bit of that imposter syndrome. Have you ever felt like that before? What am I even doing here? I don't deserve this. Is this all going to get ripped away from me? Is this really how it's going to be? And he speaks to her. But he does know. He has heard. That vow that she made face to face to Naomi, those words have come to the ears of God in heaven And her reputation of kindness and loyalty has been seen and it's been heard. Only she doesn't know all that yet. She just hears the voice of this master and she looks up. And while Boaz could have simply said, all right, carry on. And allowed her to do what was expected under the law. He could have just said that. To glean the edges of the field, which was in the law. He goes above the law. And listen to what he says. And I'm going to break it down in a few groups here, starting in verse 8. Do not glean in another field or leave this one. You could go, Ruth, but don't. But keep close to my young women. You can have friendships with others, but stay with my people. Verse 9. 
Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. You can see other places, but only see this place and follow only my people. Be part of my tribe. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? You could fear what, what young men could do to you, but I've provided for your safety. I bet those young men expected him, right? You know how it is when that big alpha man walks into the room and all the guys on the job are, oh, yes, sir. I'm going to mess around with that guy, right? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You could bring your own water, Ruth. But take mine. Drink with my people. Ruth's response is all we need to read so that we can grasp the shocking generosity of this moment. And not brushing it aside, but blushing with surprise. Verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me. Since what? I am a foreigner. I'm not of your tribe. I'm not of your people. And maybe even speaking it out loud, she's nervous about saying it. Because maybe she thinks somehow, oh no, maybe he doesn't realize I'm, I'm a foreigner. But she says it anyway. Her question, why me? Why notice me? Why bless me? I'm, I'm not part of your people, not really. Well, the, this all reveals this humble, innocent heart that Ruth has. It reveals she wasn't trying to get anything by making that vow to Naomi back before Bethlehem. There was no manipulation on her part. No manipulation of people, no manipulation of circumstances to maneuver her way up any social ladder at all. And he answers her question and lets her know that the word is out and the word is good. And Ruth is a worthy woman. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading here. You might have ESV or NIV, NASB, message, whatever you're reading. That word answered her. The word translated answer, whatever your translation is, actually raised his voice. Not to yell, not to be mean or unkind, but so that everyone could hear. And it has the emotion. Hebrew words carry emotion with them differently than English words do. And it carries an emotion of enthusiasm and excitement. All right. So he raises his voice with enthusiasm and excitement because he wants everyone to hear what he's going to say next and what he thinks about this Ruth. He wasn't embarrassed to speak to a woman, a poor widow, a pagan. He knows she has trusted God. She's honored her mother-in-law and she was becoming part of this Bethlehem community. And here's what he says with enthusiasm in his raised voice. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And he gives her this beautiful blessing, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Take note of this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Never think a word of the Bible is there just by happenstance. They're all very deliberately recorded. And with this blessing, Boaz reveals his true heart, a heart for God. Not only that, but a heart for pointing others to God, to the one true God. For in this moment, he has the opportunity to point Ruth to himself. Really? I mean, he's the one in whose field she's gleaning. He's the one who's providing for her safety. He's the one that's providing community. He's the one who has eyes for her, and he could really take the praise. But did you hear what he said? You have come to take refuge with me? 
know with the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You have come to the God of Israel. You see, to take refuge with Boaz is to take refuge with God. That's how close Boaz is with God. This is really significant. This is a really unique man. And the beautiful phrase that he uses here, under whose wings, is actually from this poem that Moses wrote. And he recites this poem at the end of his life to remind the people of Israel how God provided personally for Moses and would provide for all of the people, right? Moses uses those exact same words. Ruth's response tells us how worried she's been. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She'd been worried, but he comforted her and he, and tells us how aware she was of her state, that she wasn't a true servant, but a foreigner, but he welcomes her. And Boaz continues the blessing with even more. It's like the biggest, but wait, there's more moment. After the gleaning time, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed the roasted grain um, around to her as well. So in verse 13, Ruth's words, spoken kindly, that phrase there, literally in the Hebrew reads, his words spoke in and over my heart. And in, in Hebrew, the heart is the seat of all everything, not just emotion like we think of it. It was like his words poured in through and swirled around and over her. That's what she was communicating. Boaz has reached to her heart with his words, his comforting words, his strong words, like God's word does to us. God's word pours over and in and through us. And I love that the narrator includes this part. And she ate until what? She was satisfied and she had some leftover. Have you ever had that experience before? You're eating and eating and eating and you're like, I am satisfied. And I got all these leftovers. I'm going to take this all home with me, right? It's the best feeling. I can eat more later. Like her cup literally, what? Runneth over completely. And this is exactly what Isaiah later says of God. And now he calls all who will come to him. Listen to Isaiah 55 and hear how it parallels exactly what Boaz has done and what Ruth is receiving. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And honestly, I, I hear Abdullah's voice from Big Fat Greek Wedding. You don't have no money? <laughs> That's okay. You eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Abula. I mean, read that again. You'll not ever be able to unread it that way, right? Okay. So Boaz's blessing and provision for Ruth continue, and he tells us men to deliberately leave sheaves for her and let her pick them up without any trouble. In other words, normally if you drop a sheaf, you're, you're like, whoa, I dropped that. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble with the boss. He's like, leave them. Put, yank them out and leave them for this lady. Like he is going all out to take care of Ruth. All right. Um, in addition, she gets to take home these leftovers from lunch. In other words, she's not just sitting there like this. Oh, I'm just eat a little bit and stay in the corner. It's like, no, eat more. Right. And <laughs> fattening her up and getting, giving her everything. And so she ends up with all of this barley and there's a lot of different uh, differences and in interpretation about how much it was. But the, a lot of people think it's about 50 pounds of barley, 50 pounds. Wow. Right. 
Uh, so she goes back home. Naomi's completely stunned by all of this. She's confused, really, by the sight of all this grain and all this extra food. And when she realizes it's Boaz, she makes this big, huge aha moment, this huge connection there. Boaz isn't just some guy, right? He's family. And he isn't just family. He's like, whoa, he's a redeemer. Like, this guy can make stuff happen for us. And with that revelation, chapter two closes. And you and I are thinking, well, what the heck's a redeemer? He's our redeemer. And I don't know. First time I read through a book like this, I think, what does that even mean? Why is she so excited? What does that mean? I mean, I know Jesus is my redeemer, but the kinsman redeemer and all of this stuff. And hopefully through your study, you were able to kind of start getting it. Oh, so it's written to God's law, how they were, God was providing for families and not to be broken up and destitute, right? So why is Naomi so excited at this point? Before we get to that, Check this out. Chapter one, if you recall, opens with no harvest, no food at all, a famine. And chapter one closes at barley harvest, which is where we are now in chapter two. So the harvest begins around March and goes through July. And to this day, the same thing happens. Barley is harvested first. And then the wheat continues to grow and then they, they harvest in the wheat and then they move on from there to pomegranates and olives and things like that in the fall. But it's now March. This is barley harvest time, even right now in, in Israel. Oh, by the way, my, one of my dearest friends is in Israel right now and um, they have avocados in Israel. I just did a little research, a little side note there. It would have been a completely different story if she was there at avocado harvest time. I have no idea. All right. So this means, this means timing wise, that Ruth is gleaning and she's working with Boaz's people for about five months. So this isn't just, oh, hi, I met you. Oh, you gave me a bunch of food. Oh, that's it. Oh, look if we're hooking up. No, it's like this five month period of, of time that's going on. And all the while, Ruth is living with Naomi, yet knowing that something more is coming based on what Naomi has kind of hinted at, what's going on with Boaz and all the, you know, you know. People are kind of getting hot and bothered in the moment. It's, it's kind of cool. It's exciting. It's very ripe with all this exciting tension. So Ruth doesn't really understand all the things that can happen. Much like you and I walking into the scenario going, they did what? With who? Why? How? You know, we have all these questions. She's just learning it all as well. How that Jewish law worked, the love right marriage idea, the kinsman redeemer laws. But here's the deal, ladies. There is no need to try to figure it out and understand it all in that moment, she lives with her mother-in-law. She'll learn. She'll glean in the harvest, but she'll learn and she'll glean from God and the testimony of her own mother-in-law. She can trust that God's going to take care of the rest, and he does, as we see in chapter 3. But first recall that when Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem, I'm sure their plan was literally just to survive, right? Get what they could get from the edges of any field. Hope for the best. But God had other plans. Maybe it's the same for you in your life right now or in the life of a loved one that you know, just to survive. Make it through. <sighs> Deep breath. You might find yourself in a dire situation at work, your family, relationships, your own marriage, even inside of your own mind and body that you're dealing with. And making it work, just getting through it, is the best that you can hope for. Just do right. Keep your head down. Get through this. 
But listen, listen, ladies. God has other plans. I promise you. There is nothing in God's word that should ever leave us thinking that surviving is his will. God has blessing for us, abundance for us, grace overflowing, mercy pouring down on us, and more than we could possibly even imagine ready for us. Why should we doubt this for our situation today? Psalm 42, what have you been memorizing Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. Our verse is coming up this week. But we do doubt, and we do settle, and we do lose sight of the reality that our God is not just some distant, disinterested, lowercase g God, Our God, the God that we sing to, the God that we sing about, the God that we pray to, the God that we read about, that God is our God. Amen? Amen. And he's the creator of the universe. And his eye is on the sparrow. So why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. And yet we act like we don't know it. So chapter 3 begins, and with that, a turn in Naomi toward hope. Perhaps a little mother-in-law style scheming. (laughs) but depressed people don't scheme hopeless people don't make plans Naomi is hopeful and she's making plans Naomi says my daughter should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you now the word rest there is a euphemism or another way of saying shall I not help you get a hubby (laughs) that's literally what that that phrase means She reminds Ruth of Boaz as the best possible husband and gives her some interesting, to say the least, instructions. Basically, she's telling Ruth to get out of her work clothes, out of her mourning clothing, and prepare herself as a maiden ready for marriage. Wash up, dress up, show up, and wait at his feet for his command. Remember that the account of Ruth isn't just a love story. It's not just the history of this rejected foreign woman marrying a respected Jew. It's a picture of Christ and his relationship to any of us who trust in him. And so Ruth does what her mother-in-law commands. She says, all that you say, I will do. And honestly, come on, really, if you're in that situation, aren't you just scratching your head a little bit like, what? Mm-hmm. Put on a new outfit and go and sneak into the sky at the, the harvest? He's going to be sitting at wheat. He's, he's literally drunk and happy on what he's been eating. My grandma used to say, fat and happy. He's like fat and happy in the fields there. And he's laying, okay, I, I have followed you all the way from my web. I guess I can follow him to this field, right? Like, I can go this next step. So... She does it. And when Boaz discovers her at his feet, and it's interesting, four times in this chapter, feet are mentioned. Ruth had fallen in gratitude at his feet months earlier when they first met. 
And so here she is now at his feet again, softly, maybe nervously waiting for what would happen next. She went down to the threshing floor, verse 6, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold! <laughs> oh, what? I'm a lady on my feet! <laughs> What's going on here? A woman lay at his feet. And so he says, Who are you? It's dark. He's probably a little bit, maybe slightly hung over on uh, whatever he was drinking and eating at the time. And she answers. So up to this point, Ruth has referred to herself as a foreigner and as not a servant. But now Ruth is making a new beginning and she lets him know she's his servant and not just that, she has two things. If you want to write them down, they start with R. She has a request and she has a revelation. And listen to the beautiful words that Ruth borrows back from him. Listen, I am Ruth, not the Moabite. Doesn't include that part of it in there anymore. Not the foreigner, doesn't include that. She doesn't qualify it by saying, and I'm not your servant. Yeah. Yeah. I am Ruth, your servant. And then she gives the request. Spread your wings over your servant. And then she gives the revelation. For you are a redeemer. Right? Now, the word here might be translated skirt in your Bible or garment or covering maybe in your Bible. But it is literally the word for wing. It literally is that word. And as odd as that is to our ears, it would have been crystal clear in the ears of an ancient Jew. Um, she's proposing marriage, flat out. That's exactly what's happening here. She is proposing marriage. This is odd for us. Um, we expect to see the man on his knee, you know, the ring. We have our custom, and that might look odd. This is her proposing marriage because to spread your mantle or your cloak or your skirt or a wing over someone else is to seek marriage. It's actually the exact same imagery used in Ezekiel when God refers to his relationship with Israel as a marriage relationship, literally the exact same scene, exactly the same idea, right? Why didn't Ruth wait for Boaz to propose? Why? Well, considering that he was quite a bit older than she was, which he basically says coming up soon in this next verse, Ruth is letting him know that she wants him. <laughs> How old he was, who knows, right? And, um, and, he, and she hopes that he wants her as well. And boy, does he ever, right? <laughs> so he says, verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, an allusion to his being old, whether poor or rich. Mm -hmm. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. It's like she reminds him he's acknowledging it. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. His integrity speaks up here. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. 
So listen again to the beautiful words that Ruth borrows back from him. He had blessed her back in chapter 2, verse 12, for taking refuge under God's wings. And now she is saying, I will take under refuge I will take refuge under your wings as well. So he accepts her and he even calls her daughter. Do you recall in the Gospels another encounter with a garment and a redeemer and another time that God called a woman daughter? The outcast woman who was bleeding uh, continually reaches out to the hem of Jesus' garment in hopes of healing. She risks it all. To be near Christ, and she defies all the expectations of people around her, <laughs> even of Jesus. And Jesus draws her close. And what does Jesus call her? Daughter. daughter. Mm-hmm. He calls her daughter. Ruth said she would do everything Naomi told her to do, and she does all of that and more. And Boaz does all the honorable things and even more because he sends her home with hope and with even more barley. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, here, you know, we're going to do this and let this be a sign of my promise to you. Like these seeds of barley are like thousand little seeds of hope. Hope for more harvest and hope for a new life. And all that is left for Ruth to do is to wait and let Boaz work out the details. Ruth packs up all that he gives to her and heads back to Naomi, who greets her with one question. Look at the wording in chapter 3, verse 16. I'm not sure what it says in your translation, but I'm going to read it as it says it in the Hebrew. Who are you? The New International and the New American Standard translate it, How did it go, my daughter? Who has that version? New Living says, What happened, my daughter? ESV says, How did you fare, my daughter? But the most literal and accurate here is actually, Who are you? Or as the King James says, who are, um, who art thou, my daughter? <laughs> In other words, are you still Ruth, the Moabite widow? Or are you the future Mr. Mrs. Boaz? <laughs> right? She is asking identity based on what had happened at the feet of Boaz. Did you come back the same or are you different? What happened in that encounter? What's going to happen next? And as Ruth unloads all the grain. She unloads all that had happened and what was surely the second best night of her life. And she tells her all that that man had done for her. Verse 17 saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said, you must not go back empty handed. Take note of that to your mother-in-law. Verse 18. She replied, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. And I love how Boaz echoes and redeems, even reversing Naomi's wording from chapter one. Go back to chapter one. What does Naomi say? I went away full and the Lord has brought me back what? Empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And as as if Boaz knew those words of Naomi, the the empty words that she had spoken, he says, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And you know, this is the last time that the narrator of the book of Ruth records any words from Naomi or of Ruth. 
we don't hear one more word from Naomi or Ruth in the rest of the story. Ruth is silent. Hmm. Naomi is silent. And Boaz takes the lead from here on out. But let's go back and look at Naomi's words to Ruth in verse 18. She replied, wait. Literally, in Hebrew, sit still. Sit still. Because come on. Can you just imagine how excited Ruth must have been to come back and antsy and full of hope? And could it be? And is this going to happen? And check out all this barley. And I can't believe it. And his feet weren't even smelly. I mean, it was great. She's just just bursting with all the details of her story. Right? Wait. Literally, sit still. And isn't that easier said than done? Isn't our nature to keep moving and keep making and keep doing? But like Ruth, in this moment, our best times are when we've risen from the feet of our Redeemer. And we laid out our hopes. We spelled out our expectations. And we wait. Hands off. No meddling. In fact, one of my favorite reminders of this is probably a verse that you're familiar with. It's from Psalm chapter 46, which begins with the truth of who God is and ends with our best advice. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And it ends with, be still and know that I am God. That phrase translated be still literally means let go. Next, Naomi's words to Ruth about Boaz remind us of exactly what God is going to do on our behalf. What does she tell her? He's not going to rest until the matter is settled. So we see the let God part of Psalm 46 literally let go, rest, hands off, and let God do his thing. Let go and let God. Just like Boaz would not rest until the matter was settled for Ruth, our God is active on our behalf. Let God be the busy one. Remember that God, through Christ Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 7, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's our Jesus. He's the busy one. He's constantly going before the Father on our behalf. He's the one moving. He's the one making it happen. Jesus is our Redeemer. He's able to redeem the worst, the saddest, the most out-of-touch corners of your life and to save to the uttermost forever, since he's always living to make intercession for us. He's always busy on our behalf. And we may feel unworthy. And guess what? We are. Yeah, there we go. We are. News, newsflash. But God, God closed that gap of worth through his own son's worth. And we, the Bible says, are clothed in his righteousness. Ladies, listen. Have you put yourself at the feet of Jesus only to wake up and busy yourself making things happen on your own? Have you sat down at his feet on a Sunday or in your Bible time and gently come to him for hope and assurance only to give up from that moment and start right back in on your own plans? Let's be women. 
the women who sit at his feet and then stand on his promises. The promise that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. For it is God who works within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. God, you are so good. We thank you for your great goodness in our life, your mercy and your love. And we pray, Father God, in this moment that we would feel deeply, sincerely, into the very core of who we are, the truth of who you are, that you are our refuge, that we can come under your wings. Lord, let us rest in that truth tonight. And as we stand to leave, let us stand only on the promise that you've got this and that we will continue to let you do your amazing work in our life. And Lord, we think about the people we love and care about and are worried about and we have a burden for tonight. And we just open our hands and we place them before you and we let them go. We let you be God. And Lord, we think about our own life and our own struggles and issues we're facing and inside of our mind, inside of our heart, our temptations and our, our tendencies of things that we just want to stop doing or start doing. God, we just lay that before you right now. It's not to our glory. It's not for us becoming better. It's because we want to glorify you and we want to make your name great. So as we leave here tonight, I pray, Father God, that each one of these women make that true in their own life, that trust in you is of paramount. She would lean on you and rest in you and stand only when she can stand on your promises. And we thank you and praise you for the power of your word tonight. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.